Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. I met Jesus in a youth ministry in 1995. I met my wife in a youth ministry in 1996. I received my call into ministry on a dirt soccer field in Mexicali, Mexico in 2001. Uh, We were uh, doing a vacation Bible school for kids in the area during spring break and our entire youth ministry packed up a bunch of 15 passenger vans and we went into Mexico and uh, played soccer with kids and they just destroyed us. Little tiny kids just running circles around us gringos and and I was on this dirt soccer field helping lead a sports ministry and I was at midfield and this junior high student from Casmer Intermediate School named Luke kind of walks by with a kid on his shoulders um, giving him a piggyback ride and he kind of looks at me and says this is awesome it's like 110 degrees outside the kid's got dirt in his teeth as he says this is awesome and I felt like everything was in slow motion it was like it was like a movie like where the camera goes above and does like a 360 view and in that moment where this junior high kid named Luke with the Mexican kid on his shoulders turns to me and says this is awesome with dirt in his teeth in 110 degree weather I felt God saying to me, this is what I want you to do with your life. I want you to help people love me and love others and give themselves away in this mission. And that was it. Uh, I changed my major at the university I was attending and um, I've been in ministry ever since. And I was a youth pastor for 11 years and Sarah and I loved youth ministry. We loved the energy that they brought. We loved hanging out with high school students. We loved to be able to teach them about Jesus and life and love. And we loved being taught by them. We learned a ton in those days as youth pastors. Leslie Newbigin said this, I do not suggest that the church go into the world as the body with nothing to receive and everything to give. Yeah, we receive so much as we minister to the youth in our city. And so for week two of our life series, we're going to look at the second 10 years, uh, our teenage years, and just see what God might reveal to you, what God might reveal to me. Now, youth ministry has changed quite a bit. I'm 40 years old now, and I thought it'd be fun to kind of go back to when I was first involved in youth ministry in the early 1990s and see if we can get a bit nostalgic about some of the things that we experienced back in the day. And so let's see if you guys can track with me. I'm gonna put a few things on the screen and if you can relate, just go back to those moments in the 1990s. How many of you guys drew this design on your binders or your folders uh, in school? Okay, right, you start with six lines uh, and then you kind of fill it in and you make some kind of a cool S. For some reason, I thought this was really cool. Maybe you can relate. And then in our cars, we experienced this thing. Some of you young people have no idea what this is, okay? Listen, our biceps were so much stronger in the 1990s because when it was hot outside, we had to deal with these things. And then finally, a hard disk or a floppy disk. Oh, these were were great for our high-tech classes. 
And I want you, I want you guys to just take a guess. Like so whoever you're sitting with or riding with right now, uh, how many, how much storage do you think one of these discs could hold? Well, I, I researched this. 2.8 megabytes. Okay? You can't even fit a song, one song, on one of these discs. And yet, that's how we saved our assignments back in the day. Our uh, youth pastor here at Prodigal Church, Addison Lyons, led us in communion a little bit earlier, and he is doing an incredible job with our student ministries here at Prodigal Church. And just as our heart and desire and vision for our PC Kids ministry is big at Prodigal Church, the same is true for our youth ministry. Uh, and we have the right guy for the job. We see so much value in investing in the next generations. And uh, the teenage years, they're, they're unique. I think you know this. Whether you remember them yourself or you maybe have a child that is in their teens now and they're driving you crazy. There is nothing like them in our lifetimes and they are uniquely difficult. And for those of you who are struggling with a teenager at home, thinking it wasn't quite like this when I was young, uh, for those of you parents of a teenager, uh, I wish when I was a youth pastor that there were more stories about Jesus' teenage years, right? That like, just at the end of Luke 2, there was just a couple hundred more verses that showed how he related to his parents, show how he related to others um, as things were changing in his life and all around him. But that's not what we get in the scriptures. We get one story when Jesus was 12 years old. It's found in Luke 12. And we're just going to see perhaps uh, some of the things that, that maybe God has for us uh, today from this story and also from the context in which Jesus grew up in. Luke 2, starting at verse 42. When he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's what we get. Verse 52, he grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. From age 12 to age 30, that's what we have. So there isn't a lot of verses about Jesus and his teenage years, but I think that a little historical background of Jesus's education could possibly help us fill in some of these gaps. Um, at the time of Jesus, most Jewish kids went to school, synagogue. Uh, and there were three schools. First was Bet Sefer, it means house of the book. And you went seven days a week for five years, mornings only, and you learned to read and you memorized the Torah. Uh, you memorized every passage of the Old Testament except for the book of the Song of Solomon, 
that's for when you get a little bit older, and the story of David Bathsheba, that's also for when you get a little bit older. And also, during this season, in Bet Sefer, there was no questions allowed. Learning, reading, memorizing, no questions. Then there was Bet Talmud, means house of learning. So where they not only had memorized the entire Hebrew scriptures, but they also um, memorized the Talmud, which was commentaries and interpretations of the scriptures. So they memorized what rabbis had said about the Bible itself. Still, you couldn't discuss anything or ask questions. And you would be about halfway through this school when you would have your bar mitzvah in when roughly about 13. And this was where almost everyone stopped and began to start their trade. But for the really gifted, for those who felt, maybe felt a stirring, who had a calling into ministry, uh, it probably wasn't on a dirt soccer field in Mexicali, Mexico, but then you would go to a school called Bet Midrash. And now finally you get to discuss, you get to argue, you get to interpret. And you can imagine that after 10 years of studying, reading, memorizing, and not being able to ask any questions, all the questions would come rise to the surface and you would passionately discuss and argue and interpret the Bible. And so in Luke 2, the passage we just read of Jesus at the temple, we read that Jesus was 12. So we can assume that he was in the middle of working hard, memorizing the Talmud, memorizing what other rabbis have said about the scriptures. So at 12, 12 years old, Jesus ditches his parents and is found listening and asking questions to the leading rabbis of his day on the temple courts. And what I want us to see here is that Jesus is embracing his faith for himself. It, and it's during those second 10 years, right? There's this season where we need to make a separation from our parents, where it's not my, my tribe's faith, it's not my family's faith, it's not my parents' faith, it's my faith. That's what I love so much about youth ministry. It was this unique season where it became their own. It had the potential for them to own their faith themselves. That it's not just something that was passed out or I was just born into it. No, they chose to live for Christ. There comes a time when each of us have to examine the things that we've always been taught, always taught to believe, and determine whether in fact we will own this faith for ourselves and for most of us, this happens in our teenage years. And Jesus here is getting it from another source, right? He's taking the initiative as a 12-year-old boy to search out his faith and to embrace it on his own. See, parents, we need this kind of season in our lives. We don't want our, parent, our kids to follow Jesus just because we follow Jesus. We want them to follow him because they want to follow him and they choose to follow him. And so I want to encourage us as, as parents of, of kids who either are in that first 10 years or are in that second 10 years to provide space for them to own their faith on their own. So when things open up and things get better and healthier and our nation gets healthier, send them to a camp, send them on a missions trip, make sure they have other experiences with other Christian adults, answer their questions, help them find the answers for themselves, encourage their questions even if that means allowing them to struggle through to their own conclusions. Owning their faith is the way forward, not just indoctrinating. As parents, for those of you who are struggling, 
in the midst of your teen, these teenage years, of these young ones. Your biggest job is to be a consistent example to them. You show your faith by how you live, by how you parent, and to pray. Uh, praying is the parenting principle that Jesus endorses. We see it throughout the Gospels. And for many of us, there's this inner stirring inside of us to own our own faith now. Maybe it, it wasn't our thing when we were young, but now we're coming to a certain understanding and a growth that when we begin to own our faith. Or maybe it, it was our thing, but in reality, we just did what we always had done. It was our parents' faith. And then we kind of lost it for a season. It wasn't yours. It wasn't something that you chose for yourself. It was chosen for you. And now you're in a season where, no, I want to explore. I want to long for something real, something that's mine. And I just want to let you know, God's on the other side of that search. I think you'll come to the conclusion that Jesus is there. Jeremiah 29 says this, that, that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And so if you are searching, if you're, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you used to and now you don't and you're exploring all kinds of avenues, I want to say, keep searching, keep digging because God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. We're not afraid of the search. We encourage everyone to search. And we encourage our young people to search as well. Now, the term teenager has only been around for about 70 years or so. And contrary to what we as parents may think, being a teenager nowadays is pretty tough. Dr. Robert Leahy is a cognitive behavioral therapist. He said this, the average high school kid has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. He says, average adolescents take in 10,000 messages per day. I don't think our brains were meant to take in that volume. And the latest nationwide survey reported that 94% of college students in America say that the number one word they use to describe their life is overwhelmed. 44% say that I'm so overwhelmed it's difficult to function, and 10% have contemplated suicide. Life isn't supposed to look that way. Young people, life isn't supposed to be that way. Jesus calls us to something more beautiful, more true, more life-giving, less life-draining. Now, we see this in music. Music in our culture actually reflects and also directs our culture. It, it reflects our culture and it also directs it and, and, and pushes it. It will signal back what is happening, but also direct the narrative that is ahead. Uh, the narrative in our heads of teenagers is different than it was 20 years ago. Different than when I was a, a teenager, different when I was a youth pastor. Let's go back to 17 years, for example, and let's look at a song from 2004. Okay, the Black Eyed Peas released their song, Let's Get It Started. Okay, great jam. And if you watch the music video, it's a bunch of young adults, all different colors, dancing in the streets. Life is a party. Fast forward to the decade uh, in 2015, a band called 21 Pilots, who really has a finger on the pulse of this generation, this, this millennial generation, they wrote a song called Stressed Out. You may recognize it. And this song is such a picture of what is going on with our young people. Here's some of the lyrics. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days 
when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. In the music video is the lead singer riding a big wheel at 25 years old into his mama's house, wishing he could turn back the clock. Uh, another lyric from the song at the very beginning of the song, he says, I was told when I get older, all my fears would shrink, but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. It's so true. Maybe we find ourselves like that song and stressed out. They did a study with children of all ages and children were shown a simple task of putting a coin in one hand and concealing it and having an, an observer uh, choose which hand they think the coin might be in. Now, if the, ch if the child that was, was told to do this, uh, if they were under four years old, they would be unable to deceive the adult because they always made it apparent which one had the coin. And so they would be like, okay, those of you with young children, you know this, they're incapable of deception. They couldn't help it. There's this unspoken longing in teenagers to go back to childhood. Wish I could turn back time to the good old days when mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Most teenagers would never say it like that. We would never say it like that. But I'm sure that there are many of us who are not teenagers who definitely relate to this song that we wish we could turn back time and go back to the good old days. Man, I know I do. Now here's another thing I learned in working with teenagers. Choose honesty over projected confidence. The younger generations have this innate sense to uh, see through us. They know whether we're buying what we're selling. They know if we truly believe it or not. So cut the pretense and just be honest and get real. It's uncanny. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can say to a millennial or, or Gen Z is, I don't know. They come to us with these questions and we say, we try and find some kind of answer that makes sense to appease them. And when the correct answer is, you know what, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. Sometimes acknowledging their questions are better than your answers is the way forward. Acknowledging that their questions are often better than our answers. Authenticity is more important than easy answers. And we need more of this in the church, right? Uh, the church isn't known for being real. The church of Jesus here in our nation and even in our city isn't known for just radiating authenticity and vulnerability. We gotta, we gotta shake that up. There's the story in the Bible where Moses, you know, the Moses of let my people go, parts the Red Sea, leads the people out of slavery and, and into the promised land as they wander in the wilderness and he encounters God up at Mount Sinai and he comes down and his face is glowing with the radiant Shekinah glory of the Lord. And the people are like, whoa, Moses, you were up there talking with God and your face is it's glowing like crazy. You got to put a veil on. It's just too much for us. So Moses puts the veil on. He puts the veil on and he wears it. And then 1,500 years later, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament writes about Moses and his encounter with the veil and the glory. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 3. Therefore, having such a hope, 
We use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. What's he saying here? He says Moses didn't want to the people to know that the glory had left. So he leaves the veil on all the time so that people assume that he's always operating in the Shekinah glory of God, that his face always radiates with the bright, shiny glory of God. And Paul here, 1,500 years later, is throwing Moses under the bus. He's saying, unlike Moses, we don't leave the veil on. We're coming with unveiled faces. We, may, we want to make sure that there's no confusion that we are not always operating under the glory of God. We are not always leaving a heavenly encounter up the mountain and shining in, with the radiance of God's glory everywhere we go. No, we keep the veil off. We're transparent. We choose vulnerability and honesty and authenticity over projected holiness. When we project perfection in the church, this does not attract people to Jesus. In fact, it does the opposite. Either they'll see right through us and know that we don't have everything together, and they know that we don't always operate in the glory, or they think that we live such unattainable lives, such lives of perfection, that they could never be a part of that, and they walk away anyway. Why try? Projecting perfection doesn't draw people near to Jesus. It pushes them away. So let's stop pretending we're perfect. Pastors included. None of us have it together. But we are together in not having it together. That is one of our mottos here at Prodigal Church, that we are together in not having it together. The way forward is honesty. The way forward is vulnerability. And when it comes to the teenage years, when it comes to us here and now, we should be aiming for progress, not perfection. That's what we want. We want progress, not perfection. How many parents can relate to this, right? As our kids get older, we see them as a reflection of ourselves. And so when they fail or they fall, we kind of take it personally. It makes us look bad, so we come down harder on them. We get our self-worth wrapped up in our kids. And in, in so doing, we become ineffective parents. Some parents need to hear this. Because we're not leading them. We're controlling them. We want to look good and feel good. So we want to make sure that they portray that in all of their actions. Now, there are four families in our church just this past three weeks that have had new babies. We love kids here at Prodigal. And new babies, oh, it's such a joy seeing them walk up for the first time and, and doing baby dedications. These are thrilling experiences for us as a community of faith. In about 12 months, these same babies are going to be taking their first steps. They're going to take a couple steps and they're going to fall down. And their mom and dad are going to go, wow, you did it. Such a great job. And they're going to pick, her, pick up the baby and then the baby's going to do their you know, and then fall down again, and we're going to cheer them on. We're not going to say failure. We don't, we don't see them falling down as failure. No, we see it as progress. But why then, when our kids turn 8, or 12, or 16, 
when they fall, we see it as failure. We don't cheer them on, we push them down. We need to see it as progress and give our kids the freedom to fail and make them not think that we lost our love for them because they're not performing. So we become a home of love, a place of grace. Let's become a place of grace. When your kids are having their own kids, they won't look back on all the times that you yelled at them, all the times that you came down on them. Now they'll look back and cherish the example that you showed and you created a place of grace. So my encouragement for you all and for me now is to radiate authenticity. Sometimes that reflects the Shekinah glory of God. And sometimes we don't have it all together. And here at Prodigal, we want to invite you to remove the veil. That we walk around with unveiled faces. That nobody on our team has it all together, including your pastor. But we are just this ragtag bunch of liars, dreamers, misfits, saints, and sinners. And we're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to live a life of love, a life of grace. And that's something that every teenager longs for, and not just every teenager, but every one of us. We long for a place of grace. So let's create that in all the spaces we have, including our church and our home and our place of work and in our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online here at Prodigal Church Fresno. And we want to invite you next week uh, for the finale of our Life Sermon Series uh, at 10 a.m. in our outdoor in-person service at Fort Washington Elementary School. We know that many of you have just recently found us online and uh, you are really enjoying the online services and we love that. You are a part of Prodigal. You're just as much a part of Prodigal whether we have met you or not. But we do want to encourage you to take that next step and maybe that means joining us for an outdoor in-person service or maybe filling out that Connect card online so that we can get in contact with you, get to know you, get to meet you, hear your story, and figure out a better way for us to be a greater blessing to you and your family. And so we wanna invite you to take that next step, whatever that looks like for you. And we hope to see you in person soon. Peace the Middle East.